morning, everyone. If you want to find, if you have a Bible with you, could you turn to Revelation chapter 12? Put my notepad in the manger for now. I know, I know I don't look very festive. Um, I made the decision this morning, trust me on this, uh, to wear a Christmas t-shirt rather than a Christmas jumper. And you're just going to have to believe me, because I don't think I'm taking it off. Um, but like most... Sorry? <laughs> Steady. <laughs> like most kind of Christmas clothing, it's now more to do with Star Wars or something else. I think I have seen one Christmas jumper, uh, top marks to Pete Mylon, um, that does actually reference Jesus, which is awesome. But don't feel judged, everybody. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I found in our home uh, a few weeks back this little uh, Christmas booklet. It's too late for a stocking filler recommendation, but I wonder if some of you have come across this, um, a little book called The Weirdest Nativity, uh, another perspective on the Christmas story. Um, I wonder if you've had ever, or what, what's your weirdest Christmas? Um, sometimes Christmases can get weird, can't they? Because we're kind of doing unusual things in an unusual way. The more people crammed into the house or the unexpected happens, um, I should be careful again because perhaps you're just about to have your weirdest Christmas. Uh, but the point being is that Revelation chapter 12 gives us another perspective on the well-known uh, Christmas story. If you like, it, it zooms out from the immediate uh, nativity scene uh, of the manger, and it shows us that what happened in Jesus coming and being born was part of an absolutely epic, cosmic, awesome, wonderful story um, that we can be a part of. So rather than wish you a Merry Christmas, perhaps for the sake of this particular uh, message, I'm, I'm wishing you a cosmic Christmas uh, this year. So turn to uh, Revelation chapter 12, if you're not there already. Uh, I'll, I'll read it out as well, which says this. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness uh, to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser 
of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And I think we'll pause or stop there. A weird nativity scene. But we're going to see why I think, rather than weird, this is utterly, wonderfully, cosmically, gloriously good. Um, because of the weirdness, it might just take me a few moments to introduce the key characters. And, and then, really, there's one point, one reason why this is tremendously good news. I mean, there's more than one that we could mention, but I'm just going to go for one. Um, so, yeah, the weirdest nativity. I don't know if you've seen Love, Love Actually, but... Um, there's a nativity scene where there's an octopus uh, beside, lowing by the manger. Um, this time we, we have something else. Now we start with uh, a pregnant woman. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Who might she be? Well, we might think, oh, that's Mary. And in a way, it includes Mary. But we see that this pregnant woman that appears, his first sign, uh, is clothed with the sun, with the moon, uh, and has, is crowned with 12 stars on her head. And that's a reference to a dream once in the book of Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible, that Joseph had about the whole family of God's people. So what she represents is the faithful family uh, of God, the people of Israel, to start with, the people of Israel, all the way back from Genesis, all the way through and including the faithful, devoted Jewish people who were waiting for a Messiah that would include Zechariah and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon and would include Joseph and it would include Mary, who obviously was pregnant, eagerly waiting for uh, the Savior. Later on in the chapter, the picture develops and we kind of see, I think, that added to the faithful Jewish believers in in. Uh, in Jesus were Gentile believers, becoming this church. She becomes, if you like, the, the, the church out in the wilderness. But there we have it. There's a pregnant woman. There's a dragon, which at this point we could just think, yes, this is inspired by uh, a little bit too much uh, blue cheese and rich food, and someone's gone to sleep, nodded off in front of ooh, the king's speech, I guess it is now, isn't it? Um, and, uh, and gone into dreamland. Well, it is a bit dreamlike. There is a dragon. We think, oh, that's crackers. What, how, where on earth was, I mean, along with the octopus, where on earth was the dragon um, in that first, in the nativity? Well, actually, there was someone who was behaving in a dragon-like way, looking to devour uh, the Son of God just as he was born. Um, uh, uh, back in the story, that would be Herod who attempted, who heard news from the wise men, the magi, that a new king had been born, and he tries to trick them into revealing the location of this new baby so that he could go. He pretends it's to worship, he says it's to worship, but he fully intends uh, to murder uh, the true Son of God, Lord Jesus Christ, in his infancy. Uh, he doesn't manage to do that um, because of a dream given to Joseph, but he is an absolute piece of work, uh, and he does have 
uh, children killed. This is a guy who had his own family killed. He was a nasty piece of work, dragon-like. However, with this dragon, we know that it has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. So we're in really weird territory again. What's that about? Well, it's probably an indication not just of, of Herod, but all through time, there have been different examples of uh, an attempt to either destroy Jesus during his life or since to destroy God's church. Actually, even before, uh, there have always been attempts to destroy God's people. So we're not just looking at Herod with this dragon. We're looking at all the attempts there have been throughout time to destroy and ruin what God is doing. And behind all those different attempts and all those different people uh, is the figure, the arch manipulator and liar and deceiver, uh, uh, who is named later on in verse 9, the great dragon, uh, also called the ancient snake, called the devil or Satan. So the Christian faith has a robust explanation for why there is evil on the in the world. And Satan tried to destroy Jesus on a number of other occasions. Uh, now he pursues God's people. He pursues the church. And he will do that through, uh, through persecution, through terror. He'll do that through false teaching. He'll attempt that by constant distraction and nuisance in the life of God's people. We see the point of this story is that he will not, will never succeed. But that doesn't stop him from trying. He is defeated, but not yet, uh, not yet destroyed. Uh, let's move on. We've got the pregnant woman, the dragon, and we have the male child. If you're wondering where precisely the Christmas story comes uh, in this, it's right in verse 5. When she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And the wonder of Christmas is that we see uh, this humble king being born. He's not like any other king. And therefore, immediately upon his birth, he's, he's in humble circumstances. He's approachable to, to all sorts. Shepherds can, can come and they'll be welcomed. Uh, Magi can come from afar and they'll be welcomed uh, because he's not like any other king. But we make a mistake if, as we heard earlier, all we do is go, ah, oh, isn't he cute? The point of Christmas hasn't really landed with any of us until we acknowledge that he's worthy of total worship, total allegiance and obedience now and forevermore. Uh, we, that uh, phrase being used, that he will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, is quoting Psalm 2 about God's king being installed and how God laughs at all other kings and rulers on the earth who are rising up to oppose God's king, as indeed Herod was trying to do. Ultimately, he's not, he's not worried. He laughs at feeble attempts to, re to resist the authority of the Son of God. Resisting the authority of Jesus is like your finest china trying to resist the crowbar that comes down upon it. It's just going to get smashed to pieces. 
but that we are called to, to serve, to worship. They were told in that psalm that blessed are all who take refuge in him. But he will rule all the nations, not just some of them. And he won't just rule for a time. Um, he will rule forever. An uh, iron, unbreakable, awesome power and authority that is to bless us. So those are the three characters. Now, the, the, uh, through Revelation chapter 12. Why then is this such good news? Because we could read through or hear Revelation 12 and we could kind of focus in the wrong way on all the wrong stuff and think, oh my goodness, Whew, there's a dragon with loads of heads doing nasty stuff. He's always done nasty stuff and he's still trying to do nasty stuff. But lighten up everyone, we'll be all right. You know, we could feel a sense of, of foreboding or of concern. It's good. Christmas is good news, not just because it gives us a break from thinking about all the rubbish stuff that happens in life or that happens in the world or our worries for the future. It's not just this moment of light relief. Shut up shop, have some nice food, watch some films and kind of try and forget about the world and try and forget about evil and try and forget about darkness. It's, it's not that. It carries a far greater encouragement and blessing to all of us who truly take refuge in Jesus, in this King. And that, the one thing I'd like to just draw out for the next little while is this, where it says in verse, well, it announces the good news in a loud voice. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Christmas is good news because part of this bigger story by which God had achieved for us a total victory over accusation. Now, Satan's name means the accuser. It's one of the things that he specializes in doing, and he's very good at it. He's also a deceiver. We're told he's the one who leads the world astray. He spins uh, lies uh, to distract us and to take us away from trusting in God so that we think that God is part of the problem rather than that God is good. But let's just focus on, on accusation, which is easy, interesting because even the, uh, the psalm that Louise read out earlier on, that uh, Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O God, and it has that line, O Lord, if, if you kept a record of wrong, if you kept a record of wrong, who could stand, it asks. Now let's just imagine then for a moment that there is a, a record of wrong for each of us, for our whole life. Let's, let's imagine how many filing cabinets, because I'm old school, how many filing cabinets it would take 
to kind of document everything that each of us has said wrong, done wrong, or thought wrong, even just in 2023. And then for it to also include as like a massive appendix all the things that we didn't do right and that we didn't say true and we didn't think holy. And let's just try and imagine all of that in one big massive, what do I call it, uh, filing cabinet, okay? For those of you born after the 1980s, that means like cloud or uh, kind of Google server. How many more servers would Google need to document all of that. And Satan, Satan is crafty, he's knowledgeable, and what he can do is just pull open the drawer, because I'm going back old school, and for any one of us, he can just take out anything at any given moment and say to us, do you remember? Do you remember this? Do you remember what you said? Do you remember what you did? I remember and it condemns you. And let me just remind you of your guilt. And in a quirky way, maybe that's why Christmas can get a little bit weird from time to time, is positively or negatively, like kind of Peter referenced earlier on, it can be that time when we just are naturally thinking back, maybe to this time last year, what were we doing, who were we with, what was it like, what's happened in the year since Next Sunday, we'll, we'll start thinking, oh, goodness, what's the new year hold? And some of us might feel really positive about that. And some of us might go, oh, do you know what? I don't really like massively dwelling on, dwelling on it. But somehow Christmas and the change of the year can get us. If you're, you know, if you're a little bit gloomy, I will lighten up, don't worry. Um, if you're prone to maybe a little bit of melancholy, and your mind just churns it over again, And we might try to answer some of those accusations. They, you know, they just present themselves in our minds. We don't always, we're not regularly thinking, oh, it's, it's Satan that's reminding us. Although I might add that he is quite adept at doing so and making us think that it's just us thinking. How do we deal with that? Well, do you know what? It's all accurate. It's all documented. It's all known. Other people in the room don't know. But you, and you don't even remember everything yourself. And God does know absolutely everything. Who can stand before the presence of God? Who can come to a holy king? Just knowing there's all this in the background. You know, there's a few times in the Old Testament where this is what Satan does. We find out that Satan, uh, amongst uh, angels, seems to be able to kind of go into the heavenly courts and come before God and bring accusation. Uh, one person he does that with is Job. And actually, he can't nail anything on Job. So he says, well, the only reason Job follows you, the only reason Job worship you, worships you, is because you've protected him so much and he's wealthy and he's got everything. He's, he's got a charmed life. God. Of course he worships you. He's got a charmed life. Remove some of your protection. Remove some of your blessing. I bet you he curses you to your face then. 
So it's kind of an accusation, isn't it? He's accusing Job, does it as well, uh, to a high priest called Joshua in, uh, in Zechariah. Let's go to this one. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3, I think. And we see, again, this kind of fascinating scene in Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me, uh, it's a kind of prophetic vision, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. We find out that uh, in verse 3, now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. It's like Satan's job and his character is to accuse. And actually, do you know what? There, there is a basis for accusation. You've chosen this, you, God, you've, you've chosen this guy to be a priest and to serve you. Can't, can't you see what he's wearing? Can't you see how filthy are his garments? And that kind of filthy garments is kind of code for he's a bad un. He's done bad things. He's thought bad things. He's failed to do God things. How on earth, Lord, can you use him? Throw him out. Be done with him. And that's how the accusations uh, come. These are the sorts of things uh, that we can hear ourselves. Oh, if only people knew what I've really been like. Or, or maybe looking to the future. Oh, do you know what? It's only a matter of time before I blow it. Those thoughts intrude that remind us of our mistakes, our imperfections, the hurt that we have caused to other people. And there are different ways that we try, uh, we can try and deal with that. I wonder sometimes if what we do is just try and come up with the alternative list. Well, I know the filing cabinet is there. <laughs> I've, I've got my little notepad, though. I've got my little notepad, and in my little notepad, I can still just about remember some things I have done. So there, ha! I'm all right. Kind of. But then we spend life with this guilty motivation of just quickly trying to be able to jot down some other things that we've done right. Well, I've done this. Look, look, I've done it. I've done it. I've done that good thing. I know I might have done other good things. And there's a bit of a trade-off. Perhaps I can hope, hope to kind of balance the books a little bit, settle accounts. I know I'm in debt. I've got a little bit over here going for me. And we try, we try and live in that way sometimes. And you know what? I, I think Christians sometimes try and live in that way sometimes. You know what it, it's a recipe for utter restlessness and guilt. And we think that the way to deal with accusation is just by our own thoughts, our own resources. We try and fight back. Or maybe we don't try and fight back. And we just smile on the outside, but we're perpetually on the inside just thinking, oh, no. Heavy heart. Should be doing better by now, but it's not the way to deal with those 
accusations. Another way that we sometimes deal with those accusations is to, is to try and question everything and say, well, it's not, no, it wasn't real. I only did that. And it wasn't great, but it's really their fault. It's really about someone else. And, I, and we deal with accusation by trying to kind of, just even if it's just internal, try and draw our attention to maybe what other people haven't done or have done. And again, Christmas can be a classic, can't it? Oh, well, I'm, I'm not great, but I'm better than others. Where, where, are, where am I in a pecking order? And we try, and we try and build ourselves up that way, subtly, by taking other people down. That doesn't work either. And then New Year comes along and we're trying to think, oh, I, I, I'm just going to get my list out and I'm going to try harder. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to do better this time. I've got some resolutions. On we go, charging to the new year. We succeed for the afternoon. It starts, it starts to crumble. That's not the way to deal with accusations. But it does say, in verse 11, they triumphed over him. There is a triumph. There is a way of overcoming accusation. And it's not by us trying to do a little bit better. It's not by us trying to turn over new leaf. It's not by us trying to take other people down a peg or two and boost our self-esteem. It is by seeing what God has done for us. Now, this is exactly, actually, what happened in Zechariah. Back in Zechariah, you can turn there. I've only got one hand free, so I'm going to stay in Revelation 12. It says that the Lord rebuked Satan. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. And the Lord commands that clean clothes be brought and put on Joshua, the high priest. It wasn't that he had to smarten himself up to become acceptable to God. It's that he had to receive what God himself had provided. And going back to Revelation 12, that's exactly what happens here. They triumphed over him, not by their own efforts, not by their own sweat and tears, but by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The way to respond to those accusations, in effect, is to say, it's all true and more. That's not even the half of it, if you want to know all the stuff I've done that's not matched up to God's uh, standard or even my own standards. That's not the half of it. But I can stand before God because of the shed blood of Jesus. Again, it's, it's put in such an a, a, a intriguing way. When we saw the Christmas story, she gave birth to a son, a male child, in verse 5, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And the rest of the verse, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So that is the quickest summary of Jesus' earthly life, death, resurrection, and ascension that you'll find in the whole Bible. He was born, and whoosh, he went up. We know that what's in between is that he lived, he loved, he drew people to himself, he called them to follow him, and he showed them what the glorious power and compassion of God is like. And then, knowing that they wouldn't understand, he revealed that it was necessary for him uh, to die 
on the cross. We've already heard this morning about the, about the atoning work of God. And we've got two choices. We trust what Jesus has done to atone for us, or we try and atone for ourselves. If atone sounds strange, it kind of means, I suppose, clean ourselves up in God's sight. We can try and do it ourselves and fail, or we can receive the fact that Jesus has done it for us on our behalf. How do we know that he did it successfully and that God accepted it? It's because he rose from the dead three days later and he ascended to God's right hand where he still uh, lives to intercede uh, for us. That's the way that we can encounter and receive complete and total forgiveness, a genuinely cleansed conscience. We still want to serve God. Later on in that passage, it encourages us to keep God's commands and hold fast to our testimony about Jesus. But it's no longer motivated by a guilt complex, like running on a treadmill. I've just got to try and get a bit faster. Driven by a fear of judgment. In Jesus, that fear of judgment goes. It's gone. Why? Because the blood of the Lamb has cleansed us from sin. But you'll also see this total triumph comes about because the one bringing all the accusations has been hurled down. That phrase is mentioned three times. That the, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus prompted the universe's quickest war that was over as soon as it began. God won and Satan lost his place and was cast out of heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The accuser of the brothers was hurled down. So not only have we been totally forgiven, the record of our sin wiped out if we've received Jesus. But even the one bringing the accusations to God in that heavenly throne room is cast down. Courts adjourned. There's not even a hearing anymore. Who is there to accuse you? Well, God, the one who knows everything about us, he knows about the contents of the filing cabinet, has just written Jesus' name on everything. It's, it's done. It's dealt with. And Satan's not even able to bring those accusations into the presence of God anymore. Now that is wonderful news. We might think, well, why, the, why, then, why then is the Christian life so hard? Well, verse 12, Rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Satan is utterly defeated by Christ. Christmas is good news because it reminds us of the total defeat of all evil and the source of all evil in the entire universe. Satan is defeated. Nevertheless, like I said, he's not going quietly. It's not like a game of cricket where the batsman just decides, oh yeah, I, I, I nicked it, I'm walking off. He's not playing fair. He's been hurled down and he's still active, almost like this massively injured dragon in the 
throes of death is just lashing out? That means that we do hear accusation. That means that wars and uh, erupt, problems emerge, tensions can come. We can know temptation. We can experience accusation. Uh, we can get persecuted for our faith. Uh, terror can, can come on the earth uh, because he's still doing his level best to ruin God's creation. But he has been hurled down. God has made a way, and God is in charge of the future. His time is short. Take heart. Receive God's grace again afresh today. I know there's loads to do over weekends like this. I know there might be loads going on in life, in the world. Uh, It just grieves us, and there can be things that bring about a heavy heart. Again, we could look back over a past year and think about all the wonderful things. We can look back over the past year and think about all the miserable things. Come to the manger. Come and worship. Don't throw away your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus... Don't just think that this is a time for kind of cooing over a baby. It's a time for bowing down in worship. We don't want to set ourselves up to be resisting the one true God who made the whole universe, created us, and wants to be in eternal relationship with us. There's amazing blessing as we take refuge in him, uh, the greatest gift and God's king. So have a cosmic Christmas. And uh, we'll worship again in just a moment. I'll just pray.